John 16, verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, none of us have come to this place to learn from the wisdom of men. We have come to hear the living and true God speak to us by the power of the Spirit through the word that you've given to us in this passage. And Father, we can scarcely see even what we need to hear this morning. We have some sense of our spiritual need, but you are the God who sees to the heart. And we pray, Father, that you administer to each and every one of us accordingly as only you can do by your Spirit. We thank you for your promise to have mercy upon us, to remember how we are formed, that we are but dust, that you have in mind our, our many, many weaknesses, but your grace is more than sufficient for us as proven in the death and the resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of gift upon gift from heaven, most especially the gift of the Holy Spirit. So help us now to think upon these things as we should, for we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when we go to the airport, we tend to associate, I think, uh, emotions with one of the two choices that we have before us. We have the, the choice to go to the departures uh, section, or we can go to the arrivals. Departures, uh, for many of us, represents sadness. We're saying goodbye to someone or putting somebody on a plane that we're not going to see for some time. We've enjoyed their presence and their company, and so we're sad to see them go. Arrivals however, represents gladness and, and happiness. It's a time of reunion, to be reunited with, with family or with friends. And my wife and I uh, just uh, flew in recently into lovely O'Hare Airport. And having lived here for 12 years, I knew it was time to brace myself uh, for that heavy cloud of humidity that was going to smack me in the face when I came out of the doors. And so a time of sadness. Uh, but I was glad for no arrival of that humidity whatsoever. It's been splendid, splendid weather. But soon we'll, we'll leave, and I'm assuming our children will feel some sadness at, at our departing to go away. It was in my last year or two here when I was a pastor in Wheaton, Illinois, that I got to know your pastor. And his arrival to this group of ministers that we were meeting with uh, brought great joy to us. And uh, we prayed for this congregation several times as I did, and so last year, during the General Assembly, when the announcement was made of the, of the newest church to enter into the OPC, 
Uh, this new arrival, um, for me, it was, it was quite an emotional announcement, and it is really something now to be in your presence. And so it was also a departure of some sadness when my wife and I moved away uh, from this area. It, is, it still stings. And so this whole idea of departures and arrivals is, is something that we do associate emotionally. And this is true in our passage. And our Savior who came and took our nature upon himself fully embraced all that humanity is, and he understood what this means. And he understands what these words mean to his disciples, although they could scarcely comprehend all that he is truly saying. So in verses 4 through 5 there, he speaks of his departure. He speaks of his departure there, verses 6 through 7. He speaks of your advantage. And then verse 7, we will simply call that our gift. Those are our three points this morning. My departure, verses 4 and 5. Your advantage, verses 6 and 7. And then verse 7, our gift. Now, Jesus says here in verse 4 that at the beginning of his ministry, he did not, not talk about these things. What are these things? And this is why we began at verse 1. These things are the, uh, the times of persecution that are coming. He is now beginning to talk about the hostility that his disciples will face, uh, the persecution that's going to come. And he said, I didn't talk about such things at the beginning. The reason why, he said, is because I was with you. Now, on the one hand, at the beginning of his ministry, that was not the time for Christ to talk about uh, this approaching hostility. He took that time to teach them. He was taking that time to train his disciples, to answer their many, many questions, and to provide for their needs. He could do this because he was with them. In fact, they literally had nothing to worry about. Why? Because Jesus was with them. They did not need to worry about anything that came from the Pharisees. Jesus showed that he could handle them quite easily. They need not fear any theological question that they would raise or try to trap them. In their words, Jesus was there to answer them. They literally had no reason to be in fear of danger. Even at sea, when the storms rose, Jesus was there to rescue them. They had no fear with regard to the provision of their food. Jesus literally could multiply fish and loaves, and they also had no fear of sickness. Jesus was there to, to heal them or their relatives and friends. So you can see in the previous uh, two and three-quarters years, these disciples enjoyed safety, provision, comfort, anything they needed. It's because Jesus was with them. But that was then. And this is now. And he says he's about to leave. This is the eve of his Via Dolorosa. And he needs to prepare them for his departure. He needs to brace them for, for what lies ahead when he's gone. And again, at the beginning of his ministry, that was not the right time. But now we're at the very end of his earthly ministry. The time is right. And so he says, and he goes away, verse 5, I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me where are you going? Now, he had spoken about his departure before, and they still were not really asking the right questions, Jesus says. They've used these words. They've literally said, where are you going? Peter did this in chapter 13, verse 36. He literally uses this phrase, where are you going? Uh, Thomas in chapter 14 
says something in the same effect. He says, we don't know the way you're going. What are you talking about? And what Jesus is saying here is that they've been asking about the fact of his leaving, but they've not been asking about the meaning of his leaving. They're still not asking the why question. Why are you leaving? Why do you have to go? Or what is the significance of his departure? What's the meaning of his suffering and his death? What is the meaning of his returning to the Father? Something like this happened in chapter 14, verse 28. He said, you heard me say, I'm going away. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. And of course, what he's saying there is, I've, I've said to you, I'm going to the Father, but you don't really understand truly the meaning and the significance of my going to the Father. Now, they can't be necessarily faulted for this, for not being able to comprehend the implications of all that Christ is saying. It's going to send waves uh, through their wives, tidal waves through all of history. Imagine that you're on a kayak uh, by a glacier in Alaska, and you're starting to paddle away, and your friend looks over his shoulder and says, oh, a piece of ice just fell off that glacier. And you think, oh, what's a piece of ice? But he didn't tell you it's the size of a football field, and it weighs as much as a Sears Tower downtown. Well, that has implications. That's going to send waves that could possibly even swallow you. So they can't comprehend everything he's saying, but something is sinking in. Some things are beginning to penetrate, and it's because of what he says in verses 6 and 7. Look what he says. Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They're beginning to feel some sadness. Now, Jesus knows what he's talking about, and he knows the, the effect of his words. He knows that they have become accustomed to his constant provision. They know that they've become used to his being around. They, they feel the security of that, but just now, Christ has been talking about the fact that he's going to be betrayed, he's going to suffer in Jerusalem, he's going to die, and then after that, he's going to go away. And on top of that, he had told them that they're going to be hated. They're going to be put out of the synagogue. They're going to be persecuted. All kinds of hostility will break in upon them. They'll even be killed. And this has them rattled. It's filled their minds with confusion and with grief to think that they've enjoyed his presence all this time, and to think that now he's going to go away, well, that is unbearable. And Christ knows this. He knows it because he is God. He sees into their hearts, but he also knows what this feels like. In fact, very, very soon a time is coming in the garden when his soul will be weighed down with sorrow, he says, to the point of death, and he will yearn for their presence, for the company of their presence, when he says, can you not just watch with me for one hour? He knows what he's talking about. But his going away is not what they think. It's not what they think. It's like in chapter 14 when he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to abandon you. In fact, he says that this is for their good. He says, it's to your advantage. This is actually going to benefit you by going away. We could paraphrase, not translate, we could paraphrase verse 7 like this, notwithstanding the sorrow that you feel, I tell you, whether you believe me or not, that this is true. That his leaving seems like bad news, but actually it is really good news. Again, in chapter 14, he had talked about his going away, but he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
And so he is talking candidly about his departure, but he's saying this is, this is not without purpose. It's not without some benefit or, or silver lining to you. And in fact, this is not forever. This is not adieu. This is au revoir. This is not we're saying goodbye forever. This is until we meet again. But how can he say that? Why is this to their advantage? That brings us to verse 7, where he talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit and how it is that the Holy Spirit is procured and how the Holy Spirit comes. He puts it this way. He says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come. In fact, the helper cannot come. These two things are inseparably tied together, Christ ascending and the Spirit descending. What Christ saying he is going away points to the fact that he is going to ascend into heaven. And that ascension is crucial because the ascension proves to us that Christ was successful in his work. It's the ascension of Christ that proves to us that he won a great victory over sin through his death. That death was not meaningless, and in fact was his very intention. It, it accomplished exactly what he wanted it to accomplish to cover our sins and to remove away the curse of our sin. It's the ascension proves that he's won a great victory over the grave through his resurrection from the dead. It's Christ that now holds the keys of death in Hades. Christ has, has won the ascension, proves that. It's through the ascension that Christ is raised to the right hand of God. And when he arrives to the right hand of God, it's there that he receives the reward. The reward for successfully accomplishing his work. Now, when Christ is raised to the right hand of God, it's visited with with glory and and with honors and and with titles. We're, We're told in Scripture that when he is seated at the right hand of God after his ascension, he receives that name that is named above every name, both in this age and the age to come. We're told that it's then that he has attributed the title as head, that he is head over all things for his church, that now all rule and authority and power and dominion are placed under his feet. He is raised to this power of prominence and, and power and, and authority. But he also receives a reward, and that's the spirit, the gift, the crowning achievement of his work. Now, if you were to run in a race and you were to win that race, what do you receive from that race? Well, again, there are glories and honors, but there's also a prize. You would receive the admiration of the crowd. All of your friends would come running up to you and congratulate you, and the fellow competitors, too, would admire you. They might hate you a little bit, but they would admire you. And those are the glories and the honors, but what's the prize? What's the proof that you won the race? It comes in the form of a a ribbon or a medal or a trophy. That's the prize that you receive. The promised Holy Spirit is the prize. That is the trophy that Christ wins. It's the crown jewel of, of Christ's work, and it's all because Jesus has ascended the proof of his succeeding in his work that the Spirit descends. That is reward. But Christ says that if he goes away, he will send the Holy Spirit. So Christ giving the Holy Spirit, this is absolutely conditioned upon his going 
to the Father. This is exactly what was said in chapter 7, verse 39, at the Feast of Tabernacles. Christ is there speaking of all those who are thirsty, come to me and, and drink. But then he says this, or the, uh, John says this in verse 39, this he said about the Spirit. He was talking about living waters pouring out of one's heart. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And it's anticipating Jesus being raised from the dead, ascending into heaven, and receiving the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so we would say it's required of Christ to purchase the gift of the Spirit through his exaltation. And since Christ does succeed in his work of his death and resurrection and ascends in glory, it's the Holy Spirit that becomes the capstone of his work. This is the reward. And because it's a reward given to Christ, it's the prerogative of Christ to give the Spirit. The Spirit is his to give. The Spirit is called the gift of Christ to give to his church. This is very important. It's the ascended Christ that pours out the gift of the Spirit on the church at Pentecost. In Acts 2, when the Spirit falls upon all these men who speak in other languages, this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is the outpouring of Christ. That is exactly what Peter says when these accusations are made, when they hear all these languages, and they said, these men have been drinking too much. And Peter says, no, you have it completely wrong when he shows that the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost is actually merely the outpouring of the gift of Christ. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 2, verse 33. He says, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that's Christ, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Do you see what Peter is saying? That the coming of the Holy Spirit is at the same time the coming of Christ himself. In John 14, 16, Christ said this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Then he says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you. Christ comes in and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is Christ to give. He has earned this prize through his sacrificial death and through the power of his resurrection. He's the one who's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And this is why so often in the New Testament, as you scan it, you'll see phrases like this in Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit is not called the Holy Spirit. He's called the Spirit of Christ are called the Spirit of Christ Jesus, or even the Spirit of Jesus. And it's not a confusion of the persons. It means it's the functional equivalent that Christ has poured out this gift upon the church. And so Christ's bodily presence, that has been of comfort to the disciples. But now the Comforter comes and falls upon the church and indwells every Christian believer. And it's the Spirit that continues the ministry of Christ. And Christ says, this is better. This is better. And that's really the point of the text for us, that it's, it's for our good that Jesus went away. It sounds odd. 
But when Christ says it's for your good, do you know what he means? He means it's for your good. He is not overstating it. It's not hyperbole. It's exactly the truth. And yet each of us has probably thought something like this, that I wish I could go back to the days of Jesus and, and walk with him along the Sea of Galilee. I wish I could see him. I wish I, I could have heard his voice. I just read a promotion for a new book that's coming out, and the author says, I've always wondered what was the shape of his nose and the color of his hair. What was he like? And most of us in this room who are honest with ourselves have thought something similar to that. And Christ is saying, that's not really the right answer. It's better that I go away in order that the Spirit would come, so that the Holy Spirit would fall upon his church and indwell the heart of every Christian believer. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, the universal and invisible presence of the Holy Spirit in the church is better than the visible bodily presence of Christ with the church. And whatever the disciples might think, whatever you might think, whatever I might think, this is better. And in fact, if we just pause for a moment and think, how could the church do its work unless Christ ascended and the Spirit came upon the church, where would we be? Let's just think about the gospel itself and about Christ's work and how Christ accomplished his redemption through his death and resurrection and his ascension as we were just discussing. The gospel itself, just consider the gospel. That the death of Christ, that satisfies the, the guilt of sin that was poised to condemn us, Christ's resurrection over the grave that is his great triumph over the sting of sin and death that would, that would crush us and hold us in lifelong fear. And the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the head, as named as head at the right hand of God, and there he sits in, over all rule and authority and power and dominion. That is redemption accomplished, but how does that redemption get applied to us? It's by the Spirit. That our salvation is not just about what Christ has accomplished, it's about what the, the Spirit applies to us. Justification by faith sits at the very heart of the Christian faith. But where does that faith come from? And Ephesians 2 tells us it's a gift of God that faith is wrought in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The saving grace is given to us. It's incubated there in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We think of our effectual calling. That is God's powerful summons of us by His grace. But how does it come? It comes because the Spirit of God removes that heart of stone, as Ezekiel says, and gives to us a heart of flesh, gives to us a new heart because we're born of the Spirit. Each and every one of us strives for holiness. But Romans 8.13 tells us it's only by the Spirit that you and I are able to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to see the fruit of the Spirit flourish in our lives. It's only by the Spirit that this can take place. Our sister in Christ took five vows this morning. How is she going to do so? She said, by the grace of God. That grace is ministered to her and to us by the Holy Spirit. You and I, we know from, from the Word of God that we're children of God. But we have those moments when we doubt that. But Scripture says it's a spirit of adoption. 
who testifies to our spirit that we are God's children, that Christ is ours, and that we are Christ's. Philippians 1.6 tells us that, that Christ will continue that good work that he began where? For us? No, it says he began in us. By his Spirit, he will carry it forward to its completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is that internal working of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, there are so many benefits that you and I have that flow from our salvation and all these means of grace that are all blessed by the Holy Spirit. We know we are called to pray. This is what every Christian does. We pray, but Romans 8, 26 tells us, you don't know how to pray as you ought. But then it tells us that God has given to us the Holy Spirit, who intercedes in our hearts in words that we cannot express, in these deep groanings that are, that are fitted to the perfect will of God, that He helps us, He crystallizes these requests, and He helps us in our prayer life. All of us, through the Lord Jesus Christ, have peace with God. Does it always feel that way? That's why we have the Holy Spirit who ministers to us the peace that comes from God to quiet our hearts in those moments of difficulty in those seasons of darkness so that we do not fall into despair. It's the Holy Spirit that fuels the fire of joy in our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit we read in Scripture that is pouring into our hearts rivers of love to sustain us in our love for Christ. It's only through the Spirit that Christ can fulfill this vow. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we think of our great adversary, the devil, who is stronger than we, smarter than we, more capable than we. The Scripture tells us, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is the Spirit who indwells us, this person of the Trinity who can do all things. Greater is he than he who is in the world. We can say, based on what Christ has said, you and I have every advantage because Christ has ascended and the Spirit has come. That Christ has received the crown jewel of his work. That's what we celebrate in Pentecost. And he has poured out his gift upon his church lavishly and forever. And it's true, we can say that we do not have Christ's physical presence, but we have the Spirit of Christ present with us in our hearts. It's true, you and I have never heard the human voice of Christ, but we hear his word because the Spirit is given to us ears to ear. We hear the voice of Christ in that sense. We do not see his face, but we will. And what is the guarantee that we will? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the guarantor of this great inheritance that is to come. It's he who has been given to us to indwell us as just a small portion of what awaits us. He is that earnest and that down payment of what awaits us when we will see, with, see Christ, when we will be with Christ. You and I are not yet home, and that's why the Spirit has made his home in us until we are home with Christ in the kingdom of glory. We do enjoy so many benefits today, but they're only a foretaste of what is to come. You and I are already forgiven of our sins. You and I have already been made acceptable in the sight of God through the righteousness of Christ. But we're looking for a day when there will be no sin in us whatsoever, when you and I will be perfected in righteousness 
and holiness. You and I already enjoy the peace of Christ. We enjoy joy that we have in the Spirit, but we are looking for the day when there'll be no more mourning or crying, no more pain, when peace will reign in our hearts and eternal glory and the beauty of perfect holiness. We are loved right now, but one day we will live in a place where there'll be no more doubts about that love, and that love will be without measure. It's true already that nothing can separate us from, from Christ, from his love or from his righteousness or his holiness or his gifts or his benefits. But one day we will never be separated from his presence. But we have right now, it is better. But what we will have then, well, that would be the best. Let us pray.